welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. I hope I haven't been labelled Pastor Scrooge from last week from beginning to frame Advent in a particular way. I I emphasise how Advent begins as a season in the dark. It's a season of in-betweenness, not yetness. And it's a season which is distinct uh, from the arrival and the joy of Christmas. It's obviously deeply connected to the arrival of joy of Christmas, but it's also distinct from that. It's a season whereby we attend to a weary world in solidarity, not simply counting our own sort of Christian fuzzies and blessings, but it's a season where we are particularly aware, attuned to our world in need. Now, this is not and was not a push to have a sort of dour, sort of depressing and defeatist woe to us theology. Um, But it was rather to give, I guess, a critique of an over-realized and sort of stick your head in the sand sort of triumphalism in our worship that actually papers over or kind of ignores a world still in strife and inequality and trouble. Like Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, he once said this, there isn't really any other time for the church's life than that of Advent. Now, Karl Barth, very smart man, presumably he knew about Easter, he knew about Pentecost. But sometimes it's helpful to state the obvious that, namely that we are not there yet. We are not yet in the fullness, in between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, where there's a renewed heaven and earth. He's just saying, look, we are not there yet, and therefore Advent is obviously the time that the church finds themselves in. We live out our faith in between the times, as it were. Um, And he's drawing our attention to that. How do we take up that space as the church in between the times is one of the, the tasks of the church through Advent. And in that season then, what do we do with one of Advent's main characters? And heresy, it's not Jesus. What do we do with this character, namely John the Baptist, who pops up at this time of year in the the church calendar and scripture readings, this creature, this sort of hairy, locust-eating, honey-eating man with a fetching leather belt that kind of comes out at this time of year. What do we do with this sort of wild picture of the wild prophet who speaks as a voice from the margins, from the wilderness? I suspect this John the Baptist doesn't make it every year though he's in the scriptural uh, church calendar readings, I suspect he doesn't make it into our advent calendars. I'm not sure about that, but here's the chance. Have a look through your advent calendar and feedback if you find John the Baptist there. I suspect he sometimes goes amiss. 
It occasionally strikes me just how easy it is to filter out or domesticate a voice like John the Baptist. Um, I know this will not add to a very good picture of me having confessed to watching about 90 seconds of the hit program Casualty last week. But I was lying in bed, as you do, reading a magazine, House Beautiful magazine. And I was switching, and I just caught myself switching between reading House Beautiful magazine and the readings for this uh, uh, Sunday of, and of John the Baptist. And the, the, the moment, and I literally just reached from one magazine to the Bible to the next, and I, I thought it just started to disturb me more than just reading House Beautiful magazine. It was was just the, the, the ease I flip flop between reading that on the one hand and reading. John the Baptist and other. And then I was at a meeting or three this past week about the building project, talking about certain finishes, colours and the roof and issues like that that you need to focus on. And then I was back in the world of John the Baptist. He just came back to, to my mind again. And the thought again, I started to argue with myself that it shouldn't be so easy for me to flip-flop just between these two things. It shouldn't become so familiar that I just go, oh yeah, John the Baptist, oh yeah, how's beautiful. And I guess, I think, I think we need to, and what I was arguing myself is, we need to keep the strangeness of his voice lest we fail to actually hear what he has to say. It is a strange voice. And it is a strange voice from a, a wild character in many ways. And so let me ask you to begin with the question that I was asking myself, which was, do we only want to listen to the people who will tell us what we want to hear? Or you could put it, do we only read the parts of the Bible that we like or get or, or that affirm the position that we take? Or, or that maintains the status quo, or, or people who seem reasonable just like us. You know, is that the sort of people that we're willing to wrestle with? Because John the Baptist's voice was a voice that did not intend to maintain the status quo. His voice came as a disruptive voice from the margins, from the wilderness. And he, of course, was the last and the greatest of the prophets as they knew them paving the way for a new era that was long hoped for. And it was into that that this disruptive voice saying, with the somewhat traditional, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if we can get past the camel hair, no doubt the smell that goes with it, and the general presentation of this guy, what do we do with his sharp message and the notes he hits of judgment, repentance and this sort of threatening act that is just poised and, and ready to chop. Clearly a Christian would be unwise to discount him after all that Jesus said about him. Do you remember Jesus said, truly I tell you among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. The gospel writer Matthew models the ministry of John on Elijah. John, for Matthew, just kind of appears in the gospel of Matthew, some, in some ways a bit out of nowhere. And it's a bit like, as one theologian reckoned it, to 1 Kings 17, where Elijah just appears. Elijah was a hairy prophet who spoke in the wilderness too. 
And across the witness of the Gospels, you will find that there is a strong sense that John the Baptist's ministry is a rebirth of the kind of Elijah zeal calling people to turn back their hearts to God. Clearly, the Gospel writers think we need to hear what John the Baptist has to say in order to receive and make sense of Jesus. Otherwise, why would they would lay out their Gospels in the way that they do? And of course, then here are some of the notes that John the Baptist hits. The notes of judgment are strong and, and thick in the air. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but let me make some slightly easier points uh, first of all. Um, just to set the scene a wee bit, John clearly challenges complacent and caught, um, presumptuous spirituality. There's the sense of he called for this repentance and bearing fruit akin to a change in lifestyle. Repentance for John was not a sort of tip in your hat or a, a right belief. It was, it was a wholesale change in a return and, and a change in the way you were living. That's what he meant by repentance. And he wasn't interested in their credentials, as you heard in the reading, the, that they were children of Abraham or their beliefs in some sense. He wasn't in, interested in them in and of themselves. And so imagine if you're a theology student for a second, you're taking biblical Greek or, or a leadership class, and you, you might be forgiven to walk into that class being quite blasé, you might feel quite happy in that class. Now imagine yourself going to a class under the prophet John the Baptist. And I would imagine there is no way you're going to get away with a sort of casual, blasé, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, I'm a theology student, I, I know all the right answers. That demeanor in that class is going to get you absolutely nowhere. It's not, he's not interested. He is interested in people's wholesale turning and a wholehearted living returning to God. His baptism was a uh, a critique of the status quo and the establishment. He, a baptism was is about originating of, of a new thing, a new journey, and it, it got the attention of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are two groups. They're, they're lumped together here. Sadducees being the group that are more politically aligned. So out of them, the leaders in the temple would appoint people like the, the high priests and stuff like that. The Pharisees were the experts in the law, the ones who were just so concerned about the purity of the law, of getting the ideas right. And here we have them curious, and I like the way the, new te the NIV puts it. They, they, they're not out to, to get baptized by John. They're out to see what he's up to. They are in surveillance mode. What is this new thing you're doing? This baptism, what is this? Why would we need this? What is wrong with the established order here? Why are we having come outside to go over to you in the wilderness? Because he had a political movement gathering around him. And so John challenges complacent and presumptuous spirituality because his repentance was about lifestyle, a life turned back to God. And John also viewed the Messiah's work in terms of setting the scene here as belonging to the world stage, which is a big thing to say, but it feels like a, a, an important thing to say. 
But he wasn't portraying here a, a mere private religious sort your life out, sort your little prayer life out and, and just keep it, you know, what's true for you is, is, is true for you, but you're, everybody has their own version of that. That's, that's not what was going on here. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, which equates with the, the term the kingdom of God in other parts of the New Testament, he's talking about this strange term that means the rule or reign of God. Now, it, it's kind of a tricky term in the sense it transcends spatial categories, it transcends time, but it talks about what happens when God's reign, his will is expressed among a people. That's when the kingdom of God is present, when his reign, his rule, his ways are expressed among a people. Now, from Genesis to Malachi, we find the understanding that God is the ruler. His reign is over all the earth. His kingdom of heaven is over all the earth. But yet from Genesis 3, we know that that is not seen and expressed fully. We know there's a problem that isn't reduced through the fall. But the hope was building that one day God's rule will not just be seen from the heavens, but will one day be manifest on the earth. As Zechariah 14.9 has it, that God will become king. This was the hope. His reign, the kingdom of heaven, would be seen as on, on earth as it is in heaven. And so, and in this, this, we didn't read this, but one of the readings from the Psalms uh, for the lecture readings goes, blessed be his glorious name forever. Speaking about Yahweh, may his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. And so when he's talking about this message, he's not saying that it's just something for a little quiet group of people just to get their prayer life in order. He's talking about something on a world stage here. And again, just to set the scene of what was going on in this moment, John's message from the wilderness is saying a new era is already here with a new center to that era emerging. If I was to ask you, and don't answer out loud, there's no prizes, I don't have anything to give you, but just in the quiet, what does the wilderness symbolize for you, when you think about it through the scriptures, what comes to mind? Now, the first audience probably would have been very sharp. As soon as you mention wilderness, their mind goes to the place where Israel found their new identity, out of Egypt. They were led through an exodus, and it was in the desert, the wilderness, where God said, you are my people, and I'm going to lead you into this new place. So the wilderness was the place where God was birthing his people afresh and anew, and it was to lead to a new moment of liberation, a new exodus. And so the wilderness here symbolizes, if you like, the birthplace of God's people. And it points to something new happening. And hence why the, the Qumran community, when the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that were discovered, they were a community who were, thought the return of Christ was coming soon, immediately. And so they placed themselves in the wilderness, waiting, knowing that that is where this new act of God is going to come from. And so it's not by chance that this says that as John is preaching in the wilderness. And this new era for John is about to have a new center, no longer centered on the temple, the Torah, or the natural lines of descent, being a Jewish person born from a, the father Abraham. The center is now being redefined in terms of what these things were pointing to all along, and that was the Messiah, the anointed one. 
And in fact, the blessing will flow from the repentant, the ones who recognize their needs. No longer is descent, but Gentiles, non-Jews, people like us, coming along and finding out that this God wants the blessings to flow and not just to be with a special elite people over in the side, but pointing to the Ezekiel-esque and the Isaiah-esque where there's going to be a bigger movement where people's hearts are going to be turned from the inside out and become the people that he wants them to be, renewing them so that all nations come to Jerusalem. And so when John is speaking as a voice from the wilderness, he is saying a new era is here and it has a new center. It is not focused on Torah, temple, it's focused on the Messiah, the one who is able to bring about this new time. And so John sets quite a dramatic picture for us in terms of what he is all about but that's not all you brood of vipers the axe is ready the holy spirit comes and there's a winnowing fork and there's fire and there's language about the coming judgment of god now there is a sense that some of john's message might be probably even acceptable or deemed acceptable to its original audience. And even today, when we turn to consider these notes of judgment, I think people would get, even today, that the idea that evil should be judged, punished. And in other words, the idea of judgment uh, being a a means towards the end of, of justice is not something totally foreign, I think, even to us today. That a judgment comes to bring order and to bring about um, restoration. And we see it again in the unashamed righteousness of Isaiah's prophecy, who speaks of one able to judge and describes what this leads to. Remember last we had the reversals of this judgment leading to um, weapons being turned into farming instruments. And here we have his righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness, the belt around his loins. And then it has, the wolf shall lie down, live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and and we've got all these peaceful, unlikely scenarios that this judgment is about to bring about. It's, It's God's way of putting the world right. However, note as well that as we think like this, that righteousness in the Bible carries both the sense of right standing with God as well as right conduct towards our neighbour. In other words, we we sell people short a vision of of justice, a Christian vision of justice, if we just, uh, just land on one of those two things. But what the term righteousness, and it gets interpreted different ways, it carries both that sense, that sense of being in right relationship with God and right conduct with our neighbour. And it's, I think it's good for us to hold that um, in our minds. Now, I'll add the caveat just before um, we move on. There's what I'm not implying is, just in case somebody thinks like this, is that it's, it's got to have some sort of church or Christian stamp on it in order to be a really worthy cause or justice. That's not what I'm saying. I actually think that could be a really dangerous thing to think. Justice is, in some ways, is justice, and wherever it creeps into this world and is expressed, it can often not be through the main cord as what we see, but 
we, and we lean in, there's civil rights movements, we can lean into various different things and be like, do you know what? This is a part of what it means to see the kingdom, an expression of that. But as we lean as a Christians, we, we think clearly of what we actually, what's going on here. Because the Christian form of justice is a sign and fortress, it's pointing beyond it to a time that will come and, and a time where we'll see it in full. And so a, a Christian understanding of that would, would, would stretch us further. But yet, I, I, I fear sometimes that we, 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 we hear that as we're, we're, we siphon it off and we're the only ones who get that. And I think that would harm our mission if that was the case. But here's where I think John's message challenges the most, following on from that thought. Because he is in effect saying... There is no beautiful kingdom, the world put right, full of goodness and justice, without a just king. There is no kingdom without the king. John is clearly not it. He knows it. The disciples aren't that sure yet, but they figure things out later on. Matthew knows it, and Jesus knows it. John is pointing to the stronger one. And the message starts to become, look, it... It's, it's how you stand in response to this king. Jesus alone was God's son in the flesh who would be able and worthy to bring in this new age of salvation through the surprise of his cross. In other words, prepare to be humbled, you human race, because you can't save yourselves. You must recognize the harm you've done. And whilst on the one hand we're comfortable saying there's judgment and things need put right out there, the invitation here is to, is to also see there's, there's something that needs put right in our own hearts, that needs put right in our own lives to be brought back into the full presence of God. And it's only Jesus who is able to do that, who is able to overcome the human propensity to sin and do what's right in her own eyes. So John is just saying, repent, repent, for Jesus has come. Now, John's baptism did not offer salvation in terms of his own baptism itself, if that makes any sense, that is a sentence. He was the herald of something to come. It would be very easy to think, we just need to sort our conduct out and we'll be fine. We need to act a certain way and that will be enough. That's not what's going on here. John is in effect dusting us down and preparing the way. He is the herald of something to come, Jesus. And I guess John's baptism of repentance of sin is akin to the sort of turning where we are. He's trying to persuade his audience to let go of anything that would prevent them taking hold of the new. To let go of anything that would stop them receiving Messiah. Now, there are weeks where we come, we go, it's just what happens, our lives go on. But in Advent, and when we listen to this disruptive prophet, it's a moment where he says, he says, stop, take hold fully of Jesus. Get ready to take fully hold of Jesus. As, not as, as baptism can save us, but as, as Jesus, as he points to the one who can. Repent. Turn and, and, and bring your wholehearted life 
And now he's saying, he's pointing to the one, Jesus, take hold of him now that you've set down the things that would be in your way. And so the question becomes for, for, for us and for, certainly for John's audience is, is where do we stand in relation to Jesus? It's not what is our family of origin, social class, gifting, smarts, credentials, whatever. That doesn't really matter. And it doesn't really matter in this space. All the, really, the, the, the credentials, the, the inclusion criteria into this people of God is only ever that gift of what Jesus has done. So leave everything that you, we, we fill ourselves up with assurance about, leave it at the door. What really matters in this space is none of that, is how do we stand before Jesus? And this is what John is interested in with his audience. Where do you stand in view of this coming king? And the reality is, which is partly why this has a real tension, I was thinking, why is this so hard to preach, this passage? And I was encouraging myself, preachers over many thousands of years have probably struggled with, but why is this hard? Because here's the thing, whenever we say where do we stand, some stand to benefit from the return of Christ and some stand to not benefit. And there is a deeply disturbing reality here. And there's a delicate tension in listening to John if you are a mother who lost your, your family in Ukraine right now and are weeping and longing for something to be put right, if you're Indonesia and you've lost your whole family because they've been wiped out, you are much more likely to be ready to receive the coming king because you're desperate for help, desperate for salvation. But if you're in a position of, I just want to read House Beautiful and do up my walls and pick my fire on boat, you, the reality is, Jesus warns the rich people in the West will struggle to receive fully the king because we have more to lose. And so it's a delicate balance. John is not here to comfort us, comfort us with fake comfort. And yet within it, there is a people being baptized in the muddy waters with John who are receiving it with gratitude and joy and, and anticipating the terrible day of judgment because they know it is good news. He is putting the world right and they are all in for Jesus. All in. He is their only hope. And John comes with a winnowing fork to sort out what's actually going on because he, he wants us to not be sitting here cowering and like conjured up guilt from a fiery priest. That's not... that. He's wanting us to welcome and anticipate the beautiful kingdom and say, look... Jesus is worth it. Get ready to take hold of him fully and wholly. To let go of anything that would stop people receiving the Messiah. Judgment awaits those who persist in violence, oppression, and morality and ultimately reject God. The repentant are not the perfect ones in waiting, but the ones knowing they need the perfect one and are waiting on him, be it Christ. And I want to suggest it all depends with what you and I do with Christ. Remembering there'll be surprises. Some who say, I did this in your name, I preached that in your name. And Jesus says, I, very good. Some who through weeping and longing for justice have stumbled closer to the kingdom than they realize it, though they may not even know his name. 
But what John, I think, wants to leave people with is a community, and we see this buried in the New Testament people, eager, energized, and expectant. In the waiting, the darkness is dark, but the light is brighter. They're an eager people, an expectant people, in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a time where we acknowledge the long nights, acknowledge the not yetness of God's kingdom and his reign, and yet through the receiving the Holy Spirit, we receive the light of Christ's presence. Help is here. It's already here, not yet in full, but it's here. He is breaking in. He is available. He wants to fill us with his spirit if we will let go of the things that block the flow. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what your mistakes are. What matters is your desire to be close and trust the one who is able to bring this about. There is deep, deep assurance in this message from John the Baptist. Can you hear your Savior calling? Are you hurting and weeping? Jesus is near. Are you overwhelmed with habits defeated by your own sin and addictions? Jesus is near. Are you hard-pressed, perplexed, and overwhelmed? Jesus is near. Are you fed up, beaten up, overlooked, cold, hungry, worried about food? Jesus is near and is coming. Will you receive him? And so faithful prayers through Advent in responses to John's message could be, Lord, bless us as we recognize our need of the liberating king who cleanses, who forgives, who heals. Lord, forgive us for our wandering hearts and bring us back home. Spirit, purify and help us live a lifestyle of repentance that keeps going on, battling and reminds us of the moment we first turned to Jesus. And it sounds like, Father, give us back our first love. Or it might just be, Lord Jesus, all I know is that I have need of you and I want you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Amen. And may we be found diligently seeking and longing as we receive this king. Let's pray together. just in the stillness invite God to to speak to us and to to lead us towards him and what he has for our lives now I just always convinced the spirit knows how to woo us in the specifics of our hearts so let's just in the stillness not shy away from where God is wanting to 
bring help. The Spirit always comes to lift and to lighten. His, even when he comes to convict, he doesn't condemn. He, he wants to bring and say, there's another way, there's hope. So, Father, would you expel the voice of condemnation? There's I keep getting a picture in my mind of uh, somebody just desperately cold, actually shivering with coldness and reminded of a, 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 a quote I was landed on a few, about this, the spirit bringing warmth. And Father, Lord, it, you bring the warmth of your presence. Wherever coldness symbolizes physical realities or other spiritual realities of distance from you, Lord. Would you thaw that with your help and your healing and come bring renewed strength, Lord, that we've been praying about and singing about. Come, Lord Jesus. We worship and long for you. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us up to send us out. Come, Emmanuel. Come, Jesus. Come and bring foretaste of your glory. Expressions of your kingdom, Lord, we pray. Amen.